Nothing like a nice cool can of pop on a fish bush challenge kind of day. Talk about a cold open. You're not planning to drink that now, are you? Drink it? Oh no, I'm merely using it for a prop device. You know, it's too hard to find a radio program thunder sheet nowadays. So this was the next best thing. Our kingdom for a Foley artist. Oh, want to hear more? This is Python Out Loud, episode one on the Fish Bus Challenge, recorded February 12, 2018, at 2 p.m. Japan Standard Time. Welcome to Python Out Loud, a podcast journey from learner to developer. Today, we start by discussing the name FizzBuzz. Well, let's dive right in and tell our listeners what the FizzBuzz challenge is. I'll have to admit, when I first heard it, it made me want to grab a can of pop. But actually, once you explained it to me, it felt more like one of those thinking outside the box、uh, programming problems. I can definitely see why the fizz in FizzBuzz would make you think of soda. But the problem apparently originated from a children's game for teaching multiplication tables. Oh, right. I think I heard of that. Isn't that where children sit in a circle? Someone starts by saying the number one, followed by two and three, and so on? I think I'd rather play with a Buzz Lightyear action figure instead. Right. Except there are special rules. For example, if a number is divisible by three, the word fizz should be said instead. Buzz, if a number is divisible by five, And fizz buzz if a number is divisible by both three and five. So going around in a circle, children would say one, two, fizz, four, buzz, fizz, seven, eight, and so on. It sounds like you're really into this game, Isaiah. Actually, I've never played it, but it does sound like an interesting way of teaching division. I've also read that sometimes people add additional rules, like having the order of play reverse whenever fizz or buzz are said. And someone being kicked out of the game if they get a numbers divisibility wrong. What a brutal way of making Uno less fun. I'm glad I never had to play this game. Well, me too. But、uh, I first heard about FizzBuzz, I think about 11 years ago, in a blog called Coding Horror by Jeff Atwood, which described how job candidates were being asked to solve FizzBuzz as part of their interview. Definitely a step up from Hello World. It is, but definitely not the type of thing you'd expect to see in KR. Sorry, KNR? Yeah, sorry.、Uh, KNR means Brian Kernighan and Dennis Ritchie, the authors of the book The C Programming Language, which is where Hello World originated. But anyway, according to this blog post on FizzBuzz, someone invented the challenge as a way of weeding out people who were apparently applying for programming jobs but couldn't actually program. Oh, well, let's put a link to that blog post in the show notes. And maybe we should have a Twitter poll about whether any of our listeners have ever been asked about the FizzBuzz challenge during a job interview. Yeah, sounds good. I've certainly never been asked, but I have used FizzBuzz as an example in statistical programming classes I've taught. Statistical programming? Did you notice if students are surprised at the amount of thinking this challenge involves? Or have you noticed that solutions come to them naturally? Actually, I use it as an example rather than an exercise. Most of the students I get in statistics classes don't have much of a programming background. So, FizzBuzz is a really compact way of showing them concepts like variables, function calls, branching, and loops, all within a few lines of code. Do they find any of these concepts to be more challenging to understand than others? Based on conversations with students, actually, it seems that they tend to find all four concepts equally understandable, but many of them really get thrown off by how to check for divisibility. What do you mean by that? Like, 
a mental math challenge or knowing the syntax for divisibility in programming? Well, you know, I think most people know how to check if a number is divisible in their heads, right? They can just see if the last digit is zero or five. And some people have probably even learned a similar trick for divisibility by three at some point, even if they don't remember it. Hey, think fast. Yeah. Is 123 divisible by three? Oh, come on. That's easy. One plus two plus three is six, which we know is divisible by three. So that means 123 is divisible by three as well. Whoa, that's remarkable. Where did you learn that? In the third grade, I think. Or was it in the third year of a math PhD program? One of those. Regardless, there are rules for checking divisibility that people can't learn, but it doesn't help when trying to solve FizzBuzz. And I've noticed very few students can understand quickly how to check programmatically. Isaiah, so you do raise an interesting question I've had for a while. How much math makes a good programmer? That's actually my point. In a class of 30 grad students taking a statistical programming class, everyone has extensive experience learning complex concepts. And everyone can see how variables, if-then statements, and for loops work. But it's a context switch for them to also discuss the math involved in having a computer check if a number is divisible by 3 or 5. They need to simultaneously get their head around how function calls work while also learning the math behind modular arithmetic. I think that's an important point about FizzBuzz requiring knowledge of uh, modular arithmetic. Everyone probably already knows it without its technical name. For example, modular arithmetic is not only that mod button on your scientific calculator for getting a remainder from a division, but it's also the math behind staring at a clock when you're bored and that you can only count to 12 before you have to start back at 1 again. Right, and not the George Orwell type of clock that strikes 13. For those interested, links to more information about modular arithmetic will be given in the show notes. So who would have thought FizzBuzz could be far more philosophical than a can of pop? From a children's game to an employer job filter to mathematical thinking. Is there any sort of good trade-off for using FizzBuzz as a programming challenge for learning? Isaiah, do you think it makes a learner lose focus on actually improving their programming skills? It's a great question. A lot of programmers come from a computer science background. And computer scientists tend to know a lot of advanced math. But in my experience, a lot of problem solving needed for programming doesn't involve extensive mathematical knowledge. I'm certainly open to a better example than FizzBuzz for demonstrating programming concepts or ability. Wasn't it Steve Jobs who said everyone should learn to program as a way of learning to think? It was, but I don't think he had FizzBuzz in mind. I think it must also depend on your focus. I mean, I remember when we were learning Pygame, Some linear algebra was required to map the fluid movement of game objects across the screen. Right. We had to use linear transformations to transform pixel locations. At the same time, for interactions with a, say, web API, there's very little math involved. Yeah, because there we just need to figure out the right set of steps to get the API to do what we need it to. So I feel like our listeners might all have their own interpretation of what makes a successful programmer as well. For example, someone could be a SQL whiz without ever having heard of modular arithmetic. Or graduate students in a statistical programming class. Right, and they all be just as good at solving problems in their own problem domain. Yeah, you know, now that I think about it, if we riff off the title of Don Knuth's book, The Art of Computer Programming, perhaps programming is actually enough of an art form that there are many types of programmers each needing different skill sets to solve the problems important to them. Well, in that case, there definitely needs to be more impressionist programmers. 
Wow, can you imagine Vincent van Gogh at a keyboard? I hear he's fond of the split method. <laughs> Try again. And drum rim shot. So Isaiah, I have a challenge for you. Can you solve fizz buzz out loud? Sure. One, two, fizz, four, buzz. No, that's a terrible idea. No one would listen to the whole thing. We're going to lose our audience. Do you have a better idea? Well, how about just five lines of code? You know, you set up a for loop and then you have four if-else conditions. Sure, but why write the code yourself when you could teach a computer to solve the problem for you? How would you do that? So I think it was about a year and a half ago that I saw a blog post by someone named Joel Gruss, hope I'm saying the name correctly, where he actually trained a neural network to solve FizzBuzz for him. Wow, that's really funny. Yeah, I thought so. The blog post is written as if it were an imaginary dialogue with a job interviewer, someone who wanted Joel to solve FizzBuzz as a demonstration of programming skill. But clearly, by using a neural network, he's demonstrating quite a bit more. Well, but that doesn't exactly sound like a good idea for a job interview, does it? Especially if you confuse the interviewer. That's probably true. The real irony, though, is that in the process of setting up a solution using the Python package TensorFlow, Joel actually has to embed a solution to the FizzBuzz challenge in order to create training data for the neural net. Wow, and what was the success rate for the neural network? Well, it definitely wasn't 100%. So it might take a number like 10 and not print out buzz. So I guess no one has to worry about neural networks taking their programming jobs away just yet. At least if your job was strictly to solve the FizzBuzz challenge every day, you're safe. And on that note, hey, hey, Isaiah, I feel like my sponsorship ears are tingling. Oh, no, not again. This is commercial. Take one. Hey, Kevin, what's with the music? That's not our theme song. No, it's our commercial theme. Did we pick up a corporate overlord while I wasn't looking? No, because Python Out Loud is brought to you by... You! By me? No, no, no. By you, as in our listeners. And how can our listeners help support us? Well, definitely first by continuing to listen, but then to also tell your friends and your coworkers and your loved ones about the show. And if they want to level up their support? Then they can go to pythonoutloud.com slash donate to support us on Patreon. Or they can just leave us a review on iTunes or wherever they get their podcasts. Yeah, absolutely. We want Python Out Loud to be community-driven and nonprofit-oriented, which is why we pledge to be transparent and donate anything in excess of our operating expenses to the Python Software Foundation. Yes, please help us make the first Trans-Pacific Python podcast successful. So Kevin, we promised our listeners we'd tell them about the projects we're working on. Want to go first? Sure, I just have a short announcement this time. Actually, I've expanded on our survey distribution project. I've actually written a formal tutorial on Medium to go with it. Oh, that's awesome. This is the Qualtrics mailer package on PyPI we published? Right. Uh, the one where instead of manually having to set up your email distribution routinely, you can automate it in Python with the help of a task scheduler. With the tutorial, I'm hoping other people can follow it and use it to automate their own survey projects. It's actually quite exciting because the story has been picked up by the Association for Institutional Research, and it's slated to be published later this month in their national newsletter. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thanks. Well, how about you? 
Yeah, well, thanks for asking. So I mentioned in a previous episode, I've been working on a way to speed up the process of grading pull requests, which students make for practice collaborating using Git. I think it's great that you're encouraging your students to not only study statistics, but to also encourage them to use, you know, good industry practices for programming. Yeah, hopefully so. I figure by having students fork a repo and make cross-fork pull requests, they'll be more likely to contribute to open source projects. They'll certainly already have the right type of experience. Yeah, that's the plan. But the problem with grading pull requests on GitHub is that multiple edits to the same file sometimes introduce consistency issues. For example, I'll merge a pull request successfully, but not see the changes immediately reflected when reviewing a subsequent pull request on the same file. That sounds like a pain, but you must get a lot of time to read news articles while you wait. Well, Or you need to upgrade your bandwidth. Well, that's the problem I've solved, actually. I'm guessing GitHub uses data storage intended to be highly available, but only eventually consistent, rather than reduce availability in order to guarantee complete consistency. But anyway, sometimes it'll take a couple seconds for the changes from a pull request to take effect, but sometimes it can take a few minutes. On a day's work of a professor's grading responsibility, you know? Well, perhaps so, but I don't like to wait. So I decided to have Python wait for me. Each time I merge a pull request, I store a unique string that should be persistent in the file. Then, to ensure changes from the sequence of pull requests are reflected, I iterate over the unique strings to make sure they're all present, breaking out of the loop, pausing for a few seconds, and then trying again if needed. Oh, I I think you have to be careful. You might lose your grading job. That's one job I'm definitely willing to let automation take away from me. So what do you think, Kevin? Is this a good place to end episode one? No, not yet. We haven't discussed what to expect for our next episode. Good point. You know, I really enjoyed talking about the problem solving of FizzBuzz together. So what if we took on something a bit more involved and talked through our learning process? Like what? Well, remember you brought up the Python challenges? They start out simple, but then they tend to require greater and greater understanding of the Python standard library. That's a great idea. I think we can break down each problem into a Python learning concept, and then we can introduce each of the standard library packages that it uses. In the meantime, we'll include the link in the show note in case our listeners want to try the Python challenges themselves. Yeah, that sounds great. And hey, uh, speaking of this Python standard library, have you heard that some people call it Guido's time machine? Why? Is it because in addition to being a fan of the Monty Python, the creator of Python actually really loves Back to the Future and specifically only part three? You know, I've actually never had a chance to ask him, but it's quite common to Google for how to do something in Python, only to find out that it's already part of the standard library because of the batteries included philosophy. It's like Guido Van Rossen has a time machine and has gone back in time to solve the problem for you. Deja vu? Well, anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. And please subscribe to our RSS feed and view show notes at pythonoutloud.com slash one. And follow us on Twitter, where we're at Python Out Loud. Quick, Isaiah, think fast. It's 1,485,294 divisible by three. Well, one plus four plus eight plus five plus two plus nine plus four is 33, which is divisible by three. So that means 1,485,294.